Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So one model for disrupting a regulated industry is to create a novel product for a small segment of the market prior to expanding into the entire market. So think of it like a beachhead, where at first your product works really well for a niche population, but then slowly over time, as that niche segment helps fund your innovation, your offering becomes attractive for the entire market and ultimately upends the status quo. So some of my favorite examples of this model are Uber, which started first with the black car segment before moving into broader ride sharing, and then also Tesla, which started upmarket with the Roadster before moving mass market with the Model 3. So that is why I'm very excited to announce Enrique Dubugras, the founder and CEO of Brex as today's podcast guest. Now, for those of you who don't live in San Francisco and don't see Brex dominating the advertising game, Brex is a company that's on a mission to disrupt the credit card industry. They've started first serving customers in the startup and e-commerce segment, providing those customers a better experience powered by new age software. Now, with this initial beachhead, Enrique and his team have much larger aspirations of eventually taking on the entire corporate credit card market. It is therefore no surprise that Enrique and his team are rumored to be raising at a $2 billion valuation just two years into starting the company. So in today's podcast, Enrique and I discuss Brex's go-to-market as well as how he thinks about the role of CEO. Additionally, Enrique shares the patterns he sees across successful fintech businesses. So why don't we get started? Hey, Enrique, how's it going? Hey, uh, good. How are you? Good. So why don't we start with a bit on your success prior to you even starting Brex? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was uh, originally born and raised in Brazil and I started coding super young because it was a paid game. And I figured if I learned how to code, I could play it for free. So that's kind of, you know, how I started out. You know, after that, I ended up working at a startup and then trying to start my own startup and that I failed. And then Last year of high school, together with my co-founder, Pedro, we both started this payments company down in Brazil called Pagarme, which was like similar to what Stripe is here in the US, but down in Brazil. And we grew that company from the two of us to a little bit over a billion and a half in transaction volume, 150 people, pretty profitable. And I uh, decided to sell it in September 16 after three and a half years working on it. We sold the company, moved to the US to go to college, to go to Stanford, and then got into Y Combinator with this VR idea that pivoted into Brex uh, and then dropped out after that. I have been doing Brex since. And with that, what exactly is the pain point you're trying to solve with Brex? So basically, you know, we want to build the best new corporate credit card. You know, so traditionally as an industry that hasn't been disrupted, you're still using the same players that you used, you know, 20 years ago. And we want to build a new, better version of that experience. And for us, that kind of comes into three key differentiators. The first one is around the credit side and the underwriting side. Because of the way we underwrite, we can give people higher credit limits with no personal guarantee and much faster than anyone else. So 80-something percent of Brex customers that sign up get a card instantly. So let's dive in one bucket at a time. So what is so different about your underwriting cases or your algorithmic models there? 
the big difference is because instead of doing what we call static underwriting that, you know, we underwrite once and then don't look at it again is that we do this dynamic underwriting in which we re-underwrite every customer every day. So based on, you know, their cash balances or, you know, for e-commerce companies, their revenues, we look at that, you know, every day and we re-underwrite the customer based on that. So let's say, you know, you raised a million bucks, we might give you $100,000 as a credit limit. As you grow and raise more money, that limit increases with you, but also as you spend that money, the limit decreases with you. And the deal is, you know, you give us your banking data in exchange for us to underwrite in exchange, you have higher limits and no personal guarantee. And just to explain that pain point for those of us who aren't starting a company from the ground up, it's really difficult to apply for a corporate credit card if you haven't started generating revenues yet as a startup. So Amex will require you as a founder, even if, say, you've had three successful exits and a ton of VC funding backing you, to put down a personal guarantee because the way their underwriting process is structured doesn't allow them to take a quote-unquote risk on a startup without revenue traction, which is leaving a pretty large market on the table. Exactly, exactly. And because we understand the business, right, we understand that startups... You know, we, what we don't do is that we don't book SMB into, you know, one big thing and you're like, oh, you're just a small business. Like we understand that startups are very different than retail. They're very different than, you know, travel. So underwriting is the first bucket. What's the next bucket? The next bucket is around technology. So, you know, traditionally what banks did is that they basically bought software. So they bought, you know, third party legacy systems. And, you know, that's really hard to innovate when you're using these third-party legacy software. So what we did is that we basically rebuild the entire software stack from scratch. And that allows us to build a lot of functionality that, you know, might seem intuitive and should exist, but doesn't today. Like, you know, the extremely simple underwriting and onboarding, really easy expense management. You can just text Brexit receipt and your expenses are done. Very easy user management, add, remove users, set limits and controls for these users simple statement that you can search for a transaction, things like that. And I think you're being a little bit humble and just saying, oh, we built a proprietary software stack. Just for the audience's sake here, given just how complex and intertwined the payments and underwriting ecosystem is, could you share a few of the features that you guys have built in-house that make this a step function increase in the value prop for your customers? Yeah. You know, one of the things that we thought was super important is like reporting, right? Like how do you know how much you spent by category, by vendor, et cetera. And one of the things that is broken on payments is the categorization and vendorization that we say, which is basically, you know, you can't really trust the categories that come from the bank. So if you ever use mint.com, you can tell that, you know, that's not very accurate. Yep. I mean, when you're running a business, you need to know as accurate as possible, right? And, and then the second thing is, you know, how do you know how much you spend on specific vendor, right? Like how much you spend on Starbucks or McDonald's or Uber this month so you can control those things. And that was really hard to do. So a big piece of the core infrastructure we built was around categorization and vendorization that we call. That, you know, for every single merchant, we can say, hey, this is for sure Uber. Or, you know, and Uber is, it traditionally comes from banks as car rental. We put that as a ride share. You know, so recategorize every single transaction so we can give you like more accurate reporting, which, you know, giving you good reporting may seem like an obvious thing that everyone should do, but in the back end, it's actually pretty complicated. I'm laughing to myself here, given we're actually on ExpenseWire, so not even on a newer age expense management platform like Concur or Expensify. And in the manual process of me submitting expenses, ExpenseWire labels my Uber receipts as Wi-Fi charges. So it's definitely a problem that the incumbents haven't solved. 
So anyways, we've got our first few buckets here, underwriting, technology. What is that third bucket? And the third thing is our go-to-market strategy about going, you know, vertical by vertical. As I said, we don't bucket every single, you know, SMB into the same place. We basically treat startups different than we treat, you know, e-commerce companies different than we'll treat next set of verticals we go to. And that allows us to, one, have much lower cost of acquisition because we have to figure out specific distribution channels, right? So we can't just go buy Google and Facebook ads like that doesn't work for us. We need to partner with like VCs, accelerators, lawyers, accountants, everyone that distributes through for startups and, you know, kind of distribute through them, which in the end lowers our CAC a lot. And the second thing is that, you know, Amex did a really good job building its brand over the last hundred years. So everyone knows what American Express is, right? And it's really hard for us to win in the first few years, you know, in a global brand like American Express. So what we do is that instead of trying to compete globally, we want to beat them in the verticals that we want to be in. So like we want to have hyper awareness and preference in the startup world, right? We want every single startup to know about Brex and prefer Brex over any other card. So actually investing a lot of our brand resources, not in a national basis, but in a vertical basis, allows us to create a brand advantage in those verticals, right? Which is really strong. And the third thing is that we actually customize the product. So for example, for startups, uh, it's a 30-day payment charge card because a lot of startups, they have the cash, you know, the working capital. But for e-commerce companies, they definitely need the working capital. So it's a 60-day product. So we actually can customize each offering, you know, by vertical and create the best integrations and the best way that those verticals want to, to use the product. Got it. That's awesome. And as I think about the go-to-market, the way you're leveraging VCs, accelerators, I would think of that as a channel ecosystem, right, in conventional enterprise sales terms. Yeah. And then beyond that, when I think about the brand itself, that's really interesting, right, because I have my corporate Amex and I know that I can pull out my wallet right now and feel reliability with that American Express brand. So how do you think you'll bridge that gap over time? I think, as I said, you know, we'll bridge that gap within the verticals. I'm not going to give every merchant in the U.S. in the first year to trust us more than they trust Amex, but I can get everyone that, you know, is a startup to do that. And then I can get everyone that's in e-commerce to do that. So we're going, you know, vertical by vertical instead of trying to beating like in a national scale. Totally understand that. And I think if you play that out a couple of years, I, I already think you guys are dominating the startup vertical. But let's say in two to three years, you guys have phenomenal traction in those two core verticals as you think about expanding into, say, the mid-market or the enterprise with a company that, say, has Concur, that has a really strong corporate Amex relationship. How do you think you'll end up disrupting or upending those relationships? I think, you know, for larger companies in the mid-market, brand is less of a factor than for smaller companies. And I think the way we'll be there is just because our software and our capabilities are going to be much better compared to all the other competitors. And how do you think about recession-proofing your business when your core customer base is made up of highly volatile startups and e-commerce businesses? So I guess, how do you think about defensibility if a recession comes through and knocks out half of your customer base? I mean, no business is actually recession-proof, right? When recession comes, everyone suffers. The things that we can do are, one, diversify outside of a specific vertical. So, you know, by the time a recession hits, we already have more verticals. So it's not there. But in terms of defensibility, I think one thing that's super interesting about fintech is that, you know, it's one of the markets that is the most not winner takes all. And I say this, there's just in the U.S., there are 44 banks that are over $10 billion in market cap. And if you think about it, just like it's 44 companies that do the same thing. And they're all over $10 billion. So there's a huge market. And I think that 
you know, even if more competition comes and people copy Brex, we still have the potential to be an enormous company. So there's no like network effects in Brex somehow. But we believe that our biggest moat will be around the cost of switching because we're going to build so many capabilities and so many good things for the customer that it will be really hard to switch out. So we've talked about expense management and the more robust reporting you guys are offering as part of the credit card package. Could you talk more about your vision for the ultimate product roadmap? I think that we try to build what's the best product for the verticals we're in, right? And so if we build the best product for startups because the thing that startups care the most about is no personal guarantee, high enough limits and the rewards package and easy expense management. And that's going well. For e-commerce, they care less about that. They care more about their working capital cycle, right? And I think as we go to larger companies over time, you know, we're going to figure out what are their main pain points and build for that. So we don't think of the product vision as, you know, hey, this is the company product vision. And we think of it, what is, how do we win the vertical? And how do we win that customer? And at this point in your go-to-market, have you guys built out a sales team? Yeah, we have probably 30 people. And mostly inside sales? Between inside sales and SDR. Oh, interesting. So for the audience's benefit, just to break down what we mean by outbound and inbound sales, you can think of your outbound sales team as your conventional hunter sales exec who goes out and finds business, whereas your inside sales team generally converts customers who've already shown intent by, let's say, inbounding you with interest. But anyways, so as you've scaled your sales team, what have been some lessons learned? On a sales side... I don't know when, where these learnings can be applied, but I'll tell the learnings that we had. So one is it's worth it for us to have today to have a salesperson reach out to everyone that signs up because our economics support it. So even if someone successfully got a card, we have someone reach out to them to see if, you know, they can help off something and like, or, you know, do they still have other cards? Are they migrating all their expensive breaks? Things like that. So for us, even though we have a self-service kind of model, we still have you know, a salesperson reach out to every single customer. I think that's one. The second thing is outbound works super well for us. I don't know exactly why, it just does. I'm pretty surprised by that. Yeah, our conversion rates from you know email to customer are off the charts. I don't know why, honestly. I guess it's just a simple product everyone needs. So you're not trying to convince someone that they need Brex, you're just trying to convince them that's better than the existing. So outbound works actually super well for us. And, you know, we have very talented sales leaders in the company, so. And no go-to-market motion is just sales, right? You also need to invest heavily in marketing. And that's where I think Brex is really shine through, at least here in SF. So for the audience's benefit, for those of you who don't live in SF, I think it's safe to say that at any point that you're standing in the city, you're likely within, let's say, 100 to 200 meters of a Brex billboard. So how do you think about measuring ROI on marketing that's that broad? Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts on this, actually. So the first one is we did measure ROI, which is by just asking people to sign up. How do you heard of Brex? And a lot of people said billboards. So, you know, it's the very simple way of measuring, but it worked out. But my main argument around these things is that I think Silicon Valley companies often undervalue brand. They just hope that the product speaks for themselves. Yeah, they kind of like spot. And then the brand kind of just becomes what it becomes and is like not intentional. And I think, you know, we have an opportunity to actually not do that and actually be super intentional about our brand. So if you look at consumer companies of like more commoditized products, right? Like they're all super intentional about their brand and painfully intentional. 
Yeah. So they're buying like tons of like subway advertising, delivering a specific message. It's all consistent across the company communication. What are they about? Like their mission, et cetera, et cetera. And I think like more B2B companies, because they have product differentiation, they just like don't do that because they don't need to do that and they can still succeed without it. But I think it's like an incredible booster if you can get that right. So I think like part of investing and marketing, the way to think a little bit about brand is also is not necessarily... I'm not saying to not measure it, but I'm saying to not measure it in terms of direct sales impact. So like, even if you can't close the loop in terms of like, oh, this person saw this billboard and therefore bought, I think that the way to measure it is more towards a lift, which is I've been getting this amount of leads and, or, you know, this amount of traffic. And then as I did these campaigns, it lifted to this much. I can't necessarily attribute it a hundred percent, but I think that the awareness that it generates Plus, if some other time someone reached out to that person, they already heard of Brex, that's also very valuable. So the way we think about it is that if we spend X in brand this year for four years, over four years, our brand is going to be worth more than 4X. So we think as more as an asset that we're building towards instead of just like acquisition ROI. That makes sense. And I really love that perspective because I think it plays really well into this general theme that I believe in, which is the growing consumerization of the enterprise, right, of where brand actually does matter. So I'm curious, what do you think succinctly, what do you think Brex's brand is? You know, I think that we're in the process of like rethink our brand because like initially we want to be the best credit card for startups, right? And for us, that's the only thing that mattered. Mm -hmm. We want to be the best credit card for startups. And now as we expand to more verticals, we have to, you know, be the best credit card for stars in e-commerce now. And then whatever the next one is, right? Yeah. So our personas change a lot. Everything changed a lot. So, you know, over the next year or so, we're probably going to, you know, rethink our brand. But today, if I were to say what we are today, Breakfast Brand is about being the best credit card for startups. And we speak to the founder and like all of that. I love that beachhead of starting with just being keenly focused on being great with startups and then expanding over time, kind of like how Uber started with Black Car or Tesla started with the higher price Roadster, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, what do you think the ideal end goal best credit card is? I think that the best credit card, it has kind of like three main aspects of it. One is it allows you to spend as much money as you need wherever you need. So I think it's kind of this allowing to spend. So we spend a lot of time like, how do we not refuse your transaction so you don't get declined in a place that you should be declined? How do we give you the highest limit, you know, that is reasonable and we still can, you know, have very little losses? How can we maximize the, your possibility to use? Then the second thing is around your, I would say kind of like back office and controls. How do you like control your credit card as much as you can, put the right limits, put the right controls into place, get the right reporting? Because you're a business, you need to set these controls in place. So having the maximum amount of control and flexibility. And I think the third is having the best amount of perks that are relevant to you. So one of the things we do, for example, is that with our rewards, we make them relevant to verticals. So for example, everyone that signs up for Brex today gets $5,000 of AWS credits. And, you know, that might not be relevant for a restaurant, but for startups is really relevant. So not only having a good amount of investment in rewards, but also rewards that are relevant for the company that's using. So kind of like the more personalization of rewards and getting away from just travel, you know? Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And going back to your first point there on being able to use a card wherever you want, right? So on a global scale, I think one thing that we struggle with oftentimes like in companies is 
there's a certain company that's really good for the U.S., but when you think about global scale, whether it be the data infrastructure, the privacy infrastructure, some aspect about it prevents it from scaling globally. And I think about my own pain point with using my Chase Sapphire. I mean, even then, I think they've solved a lot of this, but traveling globally is still loaded with FX fees or what have you. Is there anything that you guys are doing at Brex to enable a more global scale to credit card usage? Yeah, so not charging FX fees is an example. We don't charge any FX fees. And uh, I think, you know, being on MasterCard instead of American Express helps a lot in the sense of MasterCard has a wider acceptance globally. It's comparable to Visa, but better than American Express. And I think a lot of customers care a lot about that, especially in, you know, in other countries like Brazil. Until recently, it was only 50% of the merchants accepted, so Amex. So I think that's another example. And then just making all our functionality work with international merchants, right? So... I can actually tell you where you spend your money, in which country, in which currency, and all those things. That's really cool. And then as you think about scaling in a highly, highly regulated industry, I mean, do you have any lessons there just given, I think every bright-eyed fintech founder goes in the first time at least and thinks that they can just put a phenomenal product and scale, but then they have to work with the MasterCards or the Amexes and they have to work within regulation. Any key lessons learned there that you could share? Yeah. The thing is people have to embrace about building a fintech is product is not engineering and design necessarily. It's the integration between engineering, design, regulatory, and finance. Those four things have to blend together. That is your product. So I think coming from like just consumer products, you were just saying like product is like the, the tech and then the interface. But like that's not it. The product is the integration between how you make it financially possible and of like a good deal and also regulatory possible and like to create a good experience. So like you need to integrate those four things into creating like a great consumer experience. And I think a lot of times founders try to offload that to a partner and they say, oh, the bank does all the boring stuff, you know, and all the regulatory stuff. And I do, you know, all the engineering design stuff. And I think the best run fintech companies, they actually embraced all of it in house and said, hey, I'm going to deal with all of this. You know, and embrace regulation as a competitive differentiation instead of a blocker. Yeah. Viewing it as a moat that defends your business as opposed to just purely an obstacle that's standing in your way is, I think, a really good perspective. Yeah. So then working within the ecosystem, let's say you want to integrate an API with a large, slow-moving incumbent. How do you go about accelerating that cycle? Because I think oftentimes you're completely ready to get things going on your end, but they're moving really slowly as your partner. I mean, there are a bunch when you're our size now. But when you're first starting out, right? When you're first starting out, you just have to beg, you know? It's like, <laughs> there's not much you can do. Like, we started out using uh, Marketa, which is a great partner for us. And they abstracted away a lot of the pain there. So if there's a way that you can start, you know, if someone that already did that, that's, you know, a good way to start. Otherwise, you know, banks are slow. You just have to deal in project management a lot, you know. And having someone in your team that already worked with banks before is usually super helpful. That already did some kind of partnership with bank. Like, because they know how to... If you go to, like, a bank the same way you go to an equity investor, it's not going to work, you know. You need to put in the format and the jargon and all of that that they understand, you know. Exactly. Know the system, know the bureaucracy, the yeah. lingo. So, you know, when we went to partner with banks, we got to the meetings already knowing every single question they would have and pre-answering that so we wouldn't caught off guard. Like we were thinking if we were at a bank, why would we not do this? 
and try to figure that out. And then when they start with the arguments, you already have the counter argument. So that's a pretty great transition into the last part of the podcast here, which all centers around the title, pattern recognition. What are the consistent patterns you see across successful fintech startups? I think that one consistent pattern we see is the obsession around owning the stack, the tech stack. So like not relying on third-party vendors to own the stack. What are some other examples of that out of curiosity? Uh, Robinhood with their whole self-clearing, for example, is an example. Stripe integrates directly with everything and doesn't have any kind of third-party processor there. Square, you know, also owns the entire stack from settlement. And then you have other companies that, that you see that they can't create a lot of product innovation because they're stuck because they are on some sort of vendor that doesn't allow them to do X or Y or they have a bad banking partnership or they have, you know, something like that that prevents them from building stuff. That's great. Any other patterns? Usually they're really well capitalized. Raising a lot of money is pretty important for fintech. Not because you need to spend it, but because all the related parties are much more comfortable with you if you have money. Yep, that makes complete sense with the supplier risk. It's really hard to like, you know, you raise $2 million seed round and you go to a bank, they're like, I don't know if you're going to exist, you know, like. So having a lot of raising more money is definitely like Brex's first round was seven and a half million, which, you know, now doesn't look like a lot of money. But at the time, you know, it was like a seed round that size, which was like a lot. And our Series B then was 50 million and our Series C was like 160 million. So we always were like super well capitalized and that gave our partners a lot of confidence to keep working with us. And in your personal life, are there any mental models that you apply to your own decision making? Yeah, I think, you know, as a CEO, a lot of times you have a little bit of imposter syndrome because, you know, you see these stories about how Elon Musk, he basically like there was this guy and he was taking a month to do his job. And then Elon Musk overnight just went and did the entire thing by himself coding and, you know, and like to build a rocket ship. And you're like, wow, like he's awesome, but I don't think I can do that. You know, like, you know, so... Basically, I think, you know, what you realize is that the job of a CEO is, is not being like every other CEO. The job of a CEO is doing what you're good at and hiring for everything else. With being CEO, which I don't think most people are born into, what's been the most difficult aspect of being a CEO? I think the most difficult adjustment was probably like understanding that a lot of your job are things that are outside of your control. So I think a lot of times when people don't deliver, the excuse is, hey, this isn't my control. And the thing about being CEO that is like most of your job isn't in your control. And you have to work with, think of creative ways to get it done anyway. So then along those lines, what are some skill sets that you're still looking to hone yourself? I think I want to get better at like public speaking probably. You know, now that company is like 200 people, it's literal public speaking every week. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, as uh, the company grows, like learning how to manage executives better is probably something, you know, like managing ICs, you just teach them what to do and how to do stuff. Managing execs, you know, it's a completely different ball game, And, you know, it's hard to learn that without doing it. So, yeah, it's much more of a people and public speaking game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And then last question here, Enrique, what's a recent book you've read that's changed your perspective and why? There's this book, Kyle, I think it's uh, Seven Powers of Business Strategy by Hamilton. And I think you should always be thinking about what are your defensible kind of moats and like how do, would you qualify? And I think it explains in a very interesting way with a lot of examples. 
how to do that. So we're always thinking like a lot of strategic decisions, like what are these things that we're building towards the future? Well, Enrique, that's about all the time we've got for today. Thanks for joining the pod. Hey, thanks for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Enrique for joining us today. As always, this podcast is ad-free because I despise podcast ads. So if you enjoy the show, I'd love and greatly appreciate it if you could help out and support with a two-second rating and review. You can also learn more about Enrique and Brex on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. Who. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.